Hello, welcome to Oasis. Great to have you here with us, particularly if you're kind of new around. My name is Rich. I'm going to be leading us through this next part of our meeting uh, together. Uh, and today we're going to be kicking off a, a brand new teaching series, um, which, as you may have guessed from the little intro video, uh, is in the Gospel of John. And it's going to be all about Jesus. Uh, and, and John is one of the four gospel accounts. It's a, a story, a biography of Jesus' life. Uh, and every week over the next few months, we're going to be working through it together, tracking the story as it kind of follows through to Easter and beyond, and enjoying the richness of all that John has to teach us about Jesus. And as we do that, we're going to find that John has a really distinctive way um, of telling us about Jesus. It's really different to the other accounts of Jesus' life that we find uh, in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so because of that, uh, my aim this morning isn't to start at the beginning. We're not going to start in kind of chapter 1, verse 1. Instead, we're actually going to start at the end. And we're going to kind of look at a bird's eye view of the whole of John's story and what he's teaching us. We're going to explore a little bit about his motivation for writing, his uh, artistry, the way he kind of structures and constructs his book, his community, the people into which he's speaking these words, and last of all, his invitation, what he's calling us to receive as we enjoy it together. And uh, we've given it the little tagline, all about Jesus. And on the surface, that might seem like kind of a slightly obvious uh, tagline for a series in one of the Gospels, like, of course, it's going to be all about Jesus. Um, it's like a biography is like, if someone was writing a biography of my life, um, if they wanted to do that, it wouldn't be very long or interesting, I'm sure. But if they were doing that, uh, oh, no, it wouldn't. Anyway, but if they were doing that, and then they ended up talking about someone else instead, I would probably be a little bit, like, peeved, you know. Um, anyway. Instead, we're going to see that John's gospel is all about Jesus, not because it's just telling us about Jesus, but rather because it's showing us that everything is about Jesus, that the all is way bigger than this one book, that John is teaching us that Jesus is at the very center of history, that he is the one who even now divides time itself, BC to AD, by his entrance into the world, and how he is the one whose life, death, and resurrection transforms everything about our identity, about our community, about our world, and ultimately about the entire cosmos. That's the claim that John is making. That's a big claim that he's telling us about Jesus. And John's gospel is a proclamation. That word gospel uh, in Greek, the euangelion, means the good news. It was a word that um, was used at different points in the ancient world to um, tell a story that defined reality. And so uh, the Roman emperors of the time would send out these proclamations of good news, declaring that, that they are the new emperor. They are the reality-defining presence in the empire. And John is building his claim in direct opposition to those kind of worldviews. That he's saying that, that Jesus is not just the one who's defining reality in this portion of the known world, but rather Jesus is the one who defines reality reality, how things are for all time, for all people, in all places, forever. And this story that he's telling us, 
is an invitation to come and meet that Jesus. That Jesus is not like just another emperor. He's not distant and aloof. He's not consigned to the pages of history. But that Jesus is here before you today, even now, as we read these words together. He's inviting us to respond to him and his presence with us. He's asking us the same question that he asked the disciples in John chapter 6. Who do you say that I am? And John wants us to consider that if what he's writing is true, if it all happened, if the God of all creation came and walked amongst us, stepped into the world, clothed himself with our humanity, the one through whom all things were created and by whose word everything is sustained in every moment of every day, if it's true, he lived. If it's true, he died and rose again, then everything changes. In one single, earth-shattering, cosmos-defining event, as Jesus walks out of the tomb. That's what John means by the word gospel. That's the good news he's telling us. It's the story of Jesus. And if what Jesus says about himself is true, then the good news for the whole world is not primarily a story about individuals coming into a personal relationship with God. Although, of course, that's part of it, but it's so much bigger. It's how the creator God launched his rescue operation for the whole of creation, a creation drowning in darkness and desperate for light, desperate for good news. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was once reading through uh, one of the Gospels for the first time with a couple of international students who'd come over to the University of Birmingham to study uh, for a term. They had absolutely kind of zero knowledge of Jesus or Christianity. Um, they didn't speak very much English at all, but they were interested, and they'd come along to an event they'd been putting on, and they wanted to read this story about Jesus to find out a bit about him for themselves. And so they'd been reading it together, and one of them had, had read on a little bit in the story. They got ahead of where they were up to together. And uh, my friend was walking across campus one day when this person came up to him absolutely devastated because they'd just got to the bit where Jesus died. And it was just the worst news you could possibly imagine that this person that they had grown to know, that they were beginning to put their faith and hope and trust in, they were beginning to see how he could change everything for them, had died. It was the worst news you could possibly imagine. Somehow, in all their conversations up to that point, they hadn't reached that bit yet. And so it came as quite a shock. Um, but instead, they had the opportunity to talk about the resurrection, how that's not the end of the story, how that very bad news is, in fact, very good news, not just for them, but for the whole world. It's good news for a world that is crying out for good news. Isn't our world crying out for good news at the moment? That's John's motivation for writing. He wants to tell that story to us in order that we might come to see that it is good news for us. And he doesn't uh, pull his punches. He doesn't 
water down his kind of motivations or hide away why he's saying what he's saying. He states it really clearly. Uh, And there's a couple of key verses that we're going to focus on today at the end of chapters 20 and 21, right at the end of John's gospel. And this is what he writes. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then again in chapter 21. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. John is writing with a really clear agenda, a really clear motivation. He wants you to read what he says and believe in Jesus and embrace a life with Jesus at the center. We don't have to kind of skirt around the edges wondering what he really means. He gives it to us straight. And because he's writing with that in mind, he's written in his book in a very particular way. Do you see how he assumes in those verses that there are other places you can go to read about the other things that Jesus has done? He's writing in the context that he knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have all written their stories about Jesus as well. He's banking on the fact that you're kind of familiar with the other things that Jesus has done as well. But he's writing to let us know that Jesus is so beautiful, that his life is so transformative, that to get any sense of its magnificence and consequence, you have to approach it from all sorts of different angles. It's like if you were holding up um, a precious gemstone to the light. So you're twisting it so that the light shines through it in all kinds of different ways. So you could see all of the different facets and the different parts of it and see its beauty from all different kinds of angles. That's kind of like the four Gospels, that Jesus is so big that we can't, because of the way our minds are built and wired, we can't explore and enjoy all of them at the same time. We have to keep looking at him from different angles to see the beauty of who he is. And if you've ever read through the Gospels one after the other, maybe if you've done Bible in a year or something like that, you'll spot that each one is really different. Each focuses on different aspects of Jesus' ministry. Each present him in a different light that is no less truthful in the same way that looking at a gemstone from a different angle is no less a representation of that gem. But that of all of the different gospel stories, John is perhaps the most different from all the others. And that's what he's telling us in these verses, that his goal while writing is not to give us kind of a blow-by-blow account of everything that Jesus did. Firstly, because there are other places you can go to find those. And secondly, because if every little thing that Jesus ever did was written down, the world wouldn't have room for it. N.T. Wright says that now the word has become flesh. All the books in the world can't do justice to it. It's not just that there aren't enough books, it's that the world isn't big enough to contain the enormity of the truth of Jesus' identity. The point isn't getting Jesus' life into books. 
John's writing because he wants to get Jesus' life into you. John's writing because he wants to get that resurrection, new creation, spirit-empowered, kingdom-inaugurating life, eternal life, life to the full, life overflowing with joy and goodness and hope and comfort. And he wants you to know it at the very core of your being. That's why he's writing. And in order to do that, he structured his gospel in a really careful way, not to try to impart to you the maximum amount of information about Jesus or the maximum number of different stories, but to give you a smaller number of more in-depth encounters with Jesus that you are invited to sit with and mull over and read and reread and read again. And to kind of help us picture that, to help demonstrate how that gets earthed throughout his book, um, I've got the help of two of my favorite Bible teachers, um, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, which is just an excellent um, project which helps to show us how Jesus is present uh, in all of Scripture, uh, and Adrian Hurst as well. Um, <laughs> Tim has provided the content, and Adrian has provided the whiteboard. So between them, <laughs> we've, uh, we've got everything we need. Um, and so, I'm going to spin it around. There we are. Very exciting, I know. This is kind of the structure of John's gospel. The way that he has put it together is not as a random assortment of things kind of dropped in all over the place. But instead, what we find is that there are three kind of key pillars throughout the story that act as kind of signposts and markers throughout it. And that the first half of the book is structured around all of these different kinds of encounters with Jesus, eight different particular encounters with Jesus, where Jesus steps into a situation which is really culturally loaded in order to bring about revelation of who he is and to transform your understanding of what that moment is. And so in this first half, he's, he steps into a wedding and the temple he meets with a rabbi, he meets a woman at a well, all things which, if they were stories about anyone else, you couldn't almost imagine them happening. But Jesus steps into them, and he transforms them. And then the same again. These are all different Jewish temples, and they're um, Jewish festivals. And the four of them, Jesus steps into those situations, and he radically redefines them to show how they've all been about him, and how they're all leading to him. And then in the middle, you have kind of a pivot point, a moment where he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's the thing that um, the authorities really don't like. He's anointed as king by Mary. He enters into Jerusalem triumphantly. And from that moment on, he sets his face towards the cross. He spends a lot of time talking to his disciples in the upper room, teaching them about what it's like to live life in him, to live life with the Spirit. And then we have the story of the passion, his crucifixion, his death. The story slows down again and again. John takes a long time to tell us about these things because they're so important. And then we have the glorious resurrection, the moment when everything changes, when Jesus in the garden inaugurates a new kingdom. 
And that's the point of the double endings that we looked at. Um, the two verses we looked at so far come at the end of chapters 20 and 21. And John puts them in there like that because he's leading us to see this point, to reach this point, to get to the end and see how all of it has been leading us here. It's all been leading us back to the cross and the resurrection, the points when everything changes once and for all for everyone. The point isn't that this is just kind of a random assortment of things that Jesus did, but that John has structured his gospel in such a way to keep leading us here in order that we might keep seeing that everything is about him. Everything is about his life and his death and his resurrection, that that's what changes everything. He gives us all these different encounters in order that we might find within them somewhere to place ourselves, that we might read the stories of him meeting a rabbi or a woman at the well or Jesus speaking at a festival and place ourselves within those in order that we might meet Jesus for ourselves in them. Um, Richard Hayes, uh, in his book, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, describes John's style as being a little bit like a set of Rembrandt's portraits. Um, here are a couple of examples of portraits by Rembrandt. And do you see how the faces of the subjects are kind of lit up? He's used light in a way that kind of centers everything on the main point of what he's trying to communicate to you. That the whole of the image is designed to guide your eye to the face of the subject. Backgrounds kind of fade away. And that although there's lots of detail in there, it's all kind of a little bit dark, a little bit faded, that everything is drawing you to this one point, the face of Christ. And it's the same with the artistry of John. Everything in his gospel is slowed down, it's given space to breathe. That where the equivalent story in Mark, for example, might take five verses, John takes 50. That each of these stories about Jesus is designed to help us guide our hearts and our minds to his face again, to see the beauty of who he is. All of these stories show us something of his beauty and his kindness, his generosity, the way that he transforms social situations and cultural situations, the way he breaks through um, societal and racial norms, the way that he um, transforms everything about how we read the Old Testament, what we understand about what it is to live life in the spirit, what we understand by his death and his resurrection, what we're to know about friendship and community and life together. And I think it's really helpful starting with this big picture view because it enables us to see that John has not just cobbled this together on kind of the back of a post-it note. There's a clear focus to what he's teaching us, which is always, always leading us to see Jesus' death and resurrection as the ultimate reality-defining truth. Why? In order that we might see that through those events, Jesus has given himself for us that we might find life in him. And the truth is, I'm a little bit of a nerd. I, lo I love things like this, okay? I could look at stuff like this all day. 
kind of the way things are structured and the details and the little signpost that John puts throughout to kind of teach us as markers about what he's talking about. But if it doesn't keep leading me to Jesus, it doesn't help me to keep seeing the beauty of Jesus' face again, illuminated for us, it's utterly worthless. I have to keep asking myself the question, how do I see Jesus more clearly because of this? And how is that shaping my life more because of that? Jesus says that himself. Chapter five, right there. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. John has built his gospel like someone sitting in an art gallery, staring at a masterpiece, admiring all of the different ways that the light hits the colors as the day goes on in order that we might sit with each of these stories, each of these portraits of who Jesus is and dwell with them and let them soak into us. A few years ago, I was given a, a copy of Mark's Gospel, um, which featured some, to be honest, kind of pretty ropey, uh, cartoon, graffiti-style graphics. Um, a number of little taglines it had on big pages throughout the start of it, designed to help it you know, seem cool and edgy and, and relevant, and the kind of thing that a hip young person like me might want to <laughs> pick up and think was really cool, I could show to my friends. Um, those days, sadly, long gone now. Um, but one of those has always stuck with me because I remembered that there was a big poster within it that, that declared that the gospel was a real-life murder mystery, which, of course, sounds really, really exciting until you think about it for, like, one minute, uh, at which point you realize the gospel is in no way set up like a murder. Like, there's no question of, of who killed Jesus. That's kind of... He doesn't come back from the dead and gather all of the suspects together in order to, like... <laughs> point out the one who did it. But there is very much a sense that John's gospel is designed in the kind of way that, just like you might re-watch a murder mystery in order to see the second time round all of the clues that you missed the first time round, we are invited to read and reread and soak and sit in these stories in order that everything that John is telling us he introduces all these kind of different themes and words and aspects of Jesus' character that are introduced here and here and here and here and which thread their way through the book and come to their fullness and their culmination and their fruition in Jesus' moment of glory as he's lifted up on the cross and as he's raised to life again. And we're invited to enjoy them together, to explore them together, to find them together. And it's really important that we're going to do this together as a community. That as we wrestle with them together, we might see Jesus more clearly. And that we might follow him more wholeheartedly because of it. And crucially, that is something that we do as a community. If we look again at verse 24 in chapter 21. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. That the one who is telling this story, the one who's behind it all, the one who has been intimately involved, John, 
one of Jesus' disciples, someone whose life has been so radically transformed by Jesus that when he refers to himself, he can only say he is the disciple that Jesus loved. He knows his identity as one that Jesus loves so fully and so completely that that's the only way he can define himself from this point on. But at the same time, this story isn't him sat alone in a darkened room thinking, how good it is that I'm loved by Jesus. He's not trying to copy down like CCTV footage into written form. This is the last gospel to be written. It is the fruit of decades that John has been contemplating the incredible events that he's telling us about. And it's being written and received in community. That's what it means when it says, we know that his testimony is true. John is writing into a community who have kind of put their stamp of authenticity and authority onto it. And in the same way, it's to be received by us as a community to hear this message about Jesus and respond ourselves to the revelation of who he is. And as 21st century Westerners, we've grown up with a worldview that puts a high level of emphasis on the individual. We can think that the Gospels are written for us to take away and read on our own. And they absolutely will bear fruit in our lives as we do that. I'd really encourage you to be doing that. Get into John's Gospel in your own devotional times. But first and foremost, primarily, they are written for us to know and enjoy together. They're written that we might take them and read them and see how our life together as a community is radically transformed by the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done. And there are pointers to this right throughout the book. At different points in the story, you'll find that uh, John, as the narrator, kind of jumps in uh, with phrases uh, like, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Uh, that's John 2, 22. And he's describing there the process for himself that although at the time he and the other disciples didn't understand what Jesus meant, the more they reflected on his words, the more they saw them in the light of his crucifixion and his resurrection, the more they understood, and the more their faith was deepened and their lives were transformed because of it. And that's really important because there are loads of points in John's gospel where nobody understands what Jesus says. You have these kind of long extended dialogues where Jesus talks with people for a long time and says a whole bunch of really confusing things. And John's inviting us into that because that's how it was for him. When he was there, when he was sat listening to Jesus, he didn't get it all at that point. And because of that, we don't need to feel a pressure to either. He's inviting us into mystery into wonder. And this is something, as we've been preparing for this series uh, as a team, that we feel is really important, that it's not that uh, me and Adrian and Mike and Sarah and the other people who are going to be sharing from the front have it all sorted. We haven't been through John and we've, we've ticked off everything. We know exactly what he's on about all the time. There are loads of moments in John's gospel that baffle me and baffle us. But the invitation is for us as a community to come together, to wrestle with them, to thrash them out in small groups and on Sundays and in different events that we're going to put on at different points to help us to do that. 
We don't need to be worried about understanding everything because John's invitation is not to understand all of the strange things that Jesus says. It's to join an adventure into mystery and depth as we dig into them together. And I'm really excited about that and about the opportunity we have to do that together over the next few months. John isn't just teaching us how to know more about Jesus. He's trying to teach us how to know Jesus more. And the way he does it is that as we sit with these portraits, the more that through the story he teaches us how to understand what it is to believe, what it is to follow Jesus, what it is to see that it really is all about him. And the point is that the more we sit with these stories, and more importantly, the more that we allow these stories to sit with us and to speak to us, to keep leading us to Jesus' death and his resurrection, the culmination of everything that his life is leading to, the more we allow something of the fullness of Jesus' identity to come and rest with us, to come and sit in our heart and our mind and transform our lives individually and as a community. It's not about us mastering John over the next few months so that we can kind of tick it off and say, John, yeah, we've done that one, onto something else. It's about John mastering us. It's about John, over the next few months, putting a foundation into our lives that we can read and reread and read again and sit with these stories about Jesus and see how that good news of the life that he wants to come and fill us with, his resurrection life, his new kingdom, new creation life can come and transform our lives. John's whole goal is for us to discover for ourselves the resurrected Jesus, to gaze at him again, to behold him and allow ourselves to be transformed in the sight of him. That's what John writes in his next letter. In 1 John, he says, every sight of Jesus is a transforming sight, that one day we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. But we're invited now to see him, even as Paul says, in a mirror dimly, in order that even that might transform us and shape us and fill us again with his life. And we're going to end our time together and kind of kickstart our series together by receiving, again, a sign of that life that Jesus has to offer us in communion, a physical embodiment of the life that is available to us. Communion is this moment where each of us is invited to this place again, where we're invited to gaze at the portrait of Jesus, of what we have seen and what we know of him, to answer again the question, who do you say I am, and to respond. John is inviting us in to receive life from the one who changed everything for him. It's an invitation to hope over fear, to peace over restlessness, to freedom over captivity, to comfort over suffering, to relationship over loneliness, to light over darkness and life over death. And if you want that, if you want this Jesus that we've just begun to explore together, 
then this is a meal for you. It's a meal for you to receive him again, to receive the life that he offers in order that it might transform your life and flow out from you to transform the life of the world around you. And so the question, do you want this Jesus? Do you want to know his life? Do you want to receive his life again? And if so, I'd invite you in just a moment to head to one of the stations around the room to take a little cup of juice and a piece of bread and bring it back to your seat. If you're not yet at that moment of declaration, if you're still thinking, this is a great opportunity for me over the next few months to explore who Jesus is for the first time, I don't know who he is. And maybe this is a moment for you to not head to the table, but instead to sit and pray that God might reveal himself to you again for the first time. But for those of you who do, if you want to say yes to Jesus this morning, if you want to know something more of the life that he has to offer you, I'd invite you to head to one of the four stations we've got around the room, collect a little piece of each and bring them back to your seat and I'll lead us through the next point together. Um, some music's going to play, so it's not very awkward at this point. Uh, if you need gluten-free bread, and there is some as well at the back by the PA desk, um, let's go and gather and come back in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And just as John has written his gospel as portraits of Jesus for us to savor, in order that they would draw us to him, and enable us to be filled with his resurrection life. So too is communion a moment for us to savor Jesus, to allow the power of what he has done in dying for us and rising again to wash away all the stuff in our lives that gets in the way of him, to turn from our self-centeredness and to receive his abundant life, to turn from our sin to receive his overflowing forgiveness, to turn from our shame, to receive his words of everlasting love and grace spoken over us. That's what we do when we take communion, when we take the bread together. Lord Jesus, come and make us new from the inside out. Let's eat together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That just as John has written his gospel as a good news proclamation that declares that Jesus is Lord as a feast for our hearts and our minds.
so too is communion, a physical good news proclamation that declares that Jesus is Lord as a feast for our bodies and our souls. That just as surely as we can taste the bread and the juice, so surely can we know that he has done everything we need to draw us into relationship with him. That he has bound us to himself forevermore in order that the riches of his grace might be displayed through us to the whole of creation. That's good news. Let's drink to that. Lord Jesus, we are here as your people. We come before you again to gaze upon you, to see your beauty and your majesty and your holiness and your kindness and your generosity. And we pray that you would reveal yourself more to us today, now, in this moment, and over the next few months as we get to gaze afresh at all these portraits of you that John has prepared through a lifetime of contemplation and care for us to know and enjoy. Lord, would you speak to us this week as we go out? Speak your words of truth and life and hope and grace to us to empower us to live a life shaped by your resurrection life, your eternal life, your life to the full, welling up inside us. And Lord, empower us over the next few weeks and months as we study this book together to behold you again in a fresh way, in a new way, and to see how the wonder of who you are transforms everything about who we are and how we're to live and your plan to make the whole of creation new. We thank you and we praise you.